Welcome to The Truth In His Heart. I am your host, Rob Lee. Thanks for listening, and do share and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a comment and let me know what you think of the podcast. Today, I am in conversation with an educator and a composer who who writes clear, warm, immersive music that focuses on performer agency. Please welcome Ian Power. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, just really, really looking forward to this. Um, I'm doing a little bit of a series. I'm trying to expand some of the folks that I've talking talked to. I think you're the second, maybe third composer I've spoken to. So mm-hmm. uh, an illustrious group, an illustrious. Group. <laughs> you know, I I was looking through the archives before this, and you've spoken to such a broad range of the Baltimore art community. That's what makes it such an honor to be here. And one of the points I hope to make today is that. I may I may be the second composer, but I think a lot of people you've talked to are, are doing similar things to what I'm doing and uh, and uh, could call themselves composers as well. That's great. That's great. Um, so with it, uh, I want to start off by, as we tap right in, I want to start off with um, what are some of your earliest musical memories and ultimately what led you on a path to become a composer? Well, my earliest musical memories are probably listening to a lot of music with my dad. That's what it comes down to. I think my dad is a musician. Um, That wasn't his main job, but he was sort of a singer-songwriter on the side. He minored in music in college. It came from a musical family. And so we listened to a lot of records, real records back back then, uh, you know, uh, from Raffi for me to the Beatles and stuff that he was really into. and from there, I, I had a, you know, I went to a public school system in Rochester, New York, that was that was good with music. And I had a lot of opportunities there, which I'm very thankful for. Mm-hmm. And um, what led me to be a composer is it came down to, you know, when I was deciding where to go to college, a life in music was really attractive to me. A lot of people surely warned me of how precarious it can be. But, you know, the idea of thinking about music and how to get it performed and, and the issues in it as being part of my day to day life. You know, a couple times I tried to get away from it, but that's what always always kept bringing me back to it. Nice. Thank you for um, sharing that with us. And yeah, I think those early experiences, it's always interesting to hear about those. And even if it's something that, you know, like it wasn't super early, but it was a little later and maybe like teenage years. And I remember listening to like jazz music on WEAA with my dad and now I'm looking in my my home. The only records that I have, you know, the majority of the records that I have are jazz records. But then I didn't really appreciate it. But now it's mm-hmm. like I need records here. And then I go back to, oh, right. Mm-hmm. He told me this. I'm just getting the lesson late. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's people talk about the Mozart effect. You're supposed to play Mozart for your babies. <laughs> I, I, I don't really believe in that. I think it's kind of stupid. But I do think that that just any music, you know, just, mm-hmm. just filling a kid's ear and atmosphere with music, um, will, will benefit them. So I, I, I like, I, and I agree with that. I, I like the learning about what it is in a day to day. Like I've, I listen to like comedians and they, they joke about like, yeah, I go to a new city and I'm just abusing myself in the hotel room until <laughs> it's time to go on stage. And that's one take, right? Or yeah. someone who's a, like me, I'm a podcaster. I've been sitting mm-hmm. here in the studio the entire day. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I took a shower recently. I took a shower for this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does the day in the life of a musician look like? What does your day to day look like? Yeah, it's a tough question. It varies by musician, and it also varies a lot by country. 
Um, sure. In the United States, there's not a lot of public support for the arts compared to especially a lot of European countries or, or other countries with a bit more of a social safety net. So for my day-to-day life, it has a lot to do with my day job, which is I'm a professor of um, arts and uh, arts production and management at the University of Baltimore. And it has a lot to do with my family. I've got a, a wife and a son. And so there's a lot of maintaining the household, maintaining relationships. So before those things, my life looked like I would wake up, write music first thing in the morning, every morning, you know, get it going, listen to a lot of music, spend the afternoon maybe doing more career stuff, looking for opportunities, self-promotion and that sort of thing. These days, it's it's a lot of fitting it in. You know, I have a, a colleague at University of Baltimore, poet Stephen Leva, um, once said that he thinks in, in our society, the talent of an artist is the ability to just make art whenever you can, when you have time for it in this modern life. And I think there's something to that. <laughs> but I will say just uh, briefly, you know, it, I, I believe that you should, there should be a discipline about it. You know, I try and write music or, or work on music at some capacity for a little bit every day. Um, there's a lot going on with my day job, with getting classes ready and, and working with students and things like that. Um, and then there is still that, you know, it's part of your job to be looking for ways to get your art out there, uh, whether it be grants you can apply to, you know, connections to make, festivals, jobs, um, just sort of expanding your knowledge of, of what resources there are available to you. Yeah. And it is a full-time thing where I'm, I don't have, uh, I'm not married, but I do have a partner, uh, no kids, but it is that thing where, you know, I'm doing X amount of podcasts in the course of a week, doing all of the other things that go along with it, you know, and I, I, I feel like I can easily balance it. And, you know, and I, and I had a conversation earlier today with a person who is doing a podcast, but they're doing it in a very maybe different sort of way. And I'm just expressing like what I'm doing and what my process is. So yeah, it does vary, but Mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned like, Oh, I might sit there for like a couple of hours just writing questions just for the sake of writing questions. Absolutely. And I tell my students, you know, if you sit down to make art for three hours and at the end of that three hours, you have a blank piece of paper or a lot of things that are crossed out, that's work. I mean, that was going to happen anyway. So you got it out of the way, you know, you moved through it. That's all part of the process. Absolutely. Yeah. And it keeps, it keeps you fresh. Like even if you're, mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, baseball, I love baseball. That is my favorite sport. And you know, sometimes you're like, all right, that was a lot of foul balls. This is, this is not, <laughs> go- this isn't going anywhere, but ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, it is something you're, you're learning about the, the pitches that are coming in your direction. You're, you're, you're timing them. You're keeping your bat speed up and, and so on. You're making contact, which I would imagine doesn't, you know, hurt the psyche. If you're mm-hmm. just swinging and missing and, and like, it's like, I'm, I'm never going to hit this. At least if you're clipping it, you're good. It's funny. I mean, as a baseball reference, you know, a really good baseball player gets a hit maybe three out of every times up at bat, right. which to me is a nice allegory to an artist <laughs> applying for grants and, and things, you know, it's, <laughs> it's about numbers, you know, you're, you'll, you'll get maybe one out of every 10. So it's just all about what you're trying to apply to. Yeah. You know, make sure those those count. Everyone's not going to be a home run. Get some of those doubles. <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, 30 percent, 30 percent. Just so you know. Hey, even a walk helps the team. Uh, yes. Uh, so, so what about your creative process? Like, could you explain, like, your creative process when, when composing and um, what do you enjoy most? And what do you kind of what's the challenge within the process? Because. Some people would like to be flowery and say, I love every part of it. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if that's no. true for everyone. <laughs> I was trying to think of a part I could say I definitely enjoyed. Um, no, that's <laughs> that's a bit of an overstatement. But 
when I, one of the things I've come to in my own artistic practice is um, I feel like the, the music I make, I can really stand behind every note, every moment. Um, and it's all, I wouldn't say tightly controlled, but it's all something that a lot of thought has gone into. Sure. And so my process tends to be a lot of sketching and planning and throwing ideas out. I have little notebooks. I fill ideas out and cross half of it out and then paste it back together. Um, and then usually toward the end of the process, I have a lot of like pre what they call pre-compositional material that allows me to kind of get a good flow going with actually writing it out getting the, the score done or the recording, whatever it is I'm particularly work, working on. What do I enjoy the most and the least? I think the answer to both of that is is starting. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy starting a new project because, you know, it's, it's just wide open. All, all the possibilities are there for me. But that can also be um, a kind of deer in the headlights thing, too. I, I'm often like, when I'm starting a new piece, I open my old pieces just to be like, okay, I can, okay, I can do this. I did this in the past. That's so I can do it again. Um, and even though I do it every time, it's just, you know, talking about maintenance, uh, maintaining your own confidence in yourself is maintenance as well. Yeah. And of course I do love when, when a performance is happening, if I'm listening to my music be performed or if I'm performing it myself, that can often be a nerve wracking experience as much as an enjoyable one. But there's often these moments that, that really make me happy. And, and that's kind of what, what you work for. Absolutely. That's, that's great. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like getting started. I think the thing I don't like is to procrastination. Because mm-hmm. that's that's almost baked in now that I'll look at and and one thing that you touched on having that notepad uh, or, or something to write down because I think we've gotten more and more and I've and I've read this in, in, in an Austin Cleon joint recently but I've read that we've gotten more and more away from analog and we focused on digital so much that something gets lost there mm-hmm. and because you know you have to do the scratching out you have to like write down other little side ideas that yeah, yeah. might contribute to the the full thing and i find that if i don't at least get started and come up with question one or, or even like research because there have been a few guests recently that i do that extra level of research that they may have a book so i'm going to like I'm going to load that up in Audible and I'm going to because I'm not going to have a chance to read it. I'm too immersed in that way, but I am going to have a chance to consume it. Or I, I, I did I did a um, interview with a filmmaker and I watched his documentary and that's part of the preparation. And, you know, normally I might put in an hour to two hours on questions and research. But if I'm doing that, that's an extra hour or whatever the commitment is to consume it. But yeah. I think it makes for a richer thing. And mm-hmm. I've, I've framed it in this way where. In the past, I might look at, man, I can't look at this movie. And it's like, no, this is research. This is going to give you questions. So look at it critically and mm-hmm. have that have that piece of analog there, have that paper and that pen there. And mm-hmm. that's going to help you kind of get started because I know if I don't get started, I'm just going to look at like I have work to do versus yeah. I have fun to engage in. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, whether... You know, obviously, like writing is working. That's what you're supposed to be doing as a composer. But, you know, is listening to music working? Is going to concerts working? And and the thing I've come to is like, you know, deep down what working is because it's the thing you're avoiding. You know, it's the thing that's hard to sit down and open up and do. And and it is, that's a big hump. It's a big hump for me. I think a lot of artists like sit down, open up, do the hard thing. Because um, not only will you stay productive, to me, that makes me feel better in my day to day. I I mean, I, I love my my job and my family. But if I'm feeling some kind of emptiness in me and I'm trying to figure out why, it's probably because I've spent 
a few too many days away from, you know, being creative every day. It's it's something that's important to me. And and I think I, I, I wish there were more opportunities for more people to discover that within them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think having that time to the one of the ways that I put it is kind of wander a little bit mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and be able to just like people describe it different things, but wandering is the best way. And I think even if it's like career oriented and not necessarily being an artist, you need time to really figure out what you're doing versus being siloed, trying to uh, go for something for whatever reason, whether it's money, whether it's I'm good at this, but it's not really something I'm passionate about. I'd rather kind of experience that early on and kind of shift around and then get to the thing that I really love and identify that almost like, having an internship, but in a real world almost. <laughs> yeah. An internship for life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the open-endedness of art making is, is what makes it scary and also really what makes it worth it. You know, yeah. I mean, the reason art is so easy to procrastinate is because all our other tasks in life have more clear goals and deadlines and things like that. And I'll say, well, I'll get this out of the way and then I'll do that. But but not only, you know, not only is pushing through and, and doing the creative, the difficult, the open-ended work, important i think it's also kind of what is important about art generally that it pushes us into that mind space that we're not always encouraged to be in i agree with that Mm -hmm. so so what's something let's get the inside dope what's something about what's something about being a composer that people might not know like they just might not get that you think people should know that's a really interesting question and i think the answer the answer i'm thinking of is there's so many different ways to be a composer Mm-hmm. And, you know, people look at musicians as though they've passed some special tests to be one. But I, I, to me, you, you're not, you aren't who you are or what your credentials are. You are what you do. What do you spend your time doing and what do you really care about? So, you know, I, I went to school for a long time for composition, but that's one way to go. You know, if you're a producer, you're also a composer. If you're learning to be a producer, if you're a songwriter, if you're an improviser, um, all of these processes have a lot of overlap and they're really only pushed apart by a kind of, I feel like old fashioned genre boundaries. Mm-hmm. Not that those boundaries don't create wonderful music and, and, and creative practices. But if I could tell someone something about a composer, it's that it's not this mystic thing. It's something that you can get better at by practicing it every day, just like an instrument or a language or a skill like mathematics or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so hallmarks, that's, that's something that I want to know about when it comes to like, you know, having the, having the opportunity to speak with artists and, um, creative types and just people doing great stuff in in, in the community. I want to see like what it looks like within the community. So like, what are some of the hallmarks, hallmarks that define an arts community? Like, and why is important, why is art like, why is music an important part of that kind of arts community? So what are some of the hallmarks that define an arts community and why is music integral to like that, that whole mix? That's a really good question. Um, to me, what's integral about an arts community specifically is a commitment to discipline uh, of working, uh, to making things, to open-mindedness that I was talking about earlier, to creativity. <clears throat> And in some senses, that's it. I mean, that's at the center of a community that should be organized or held accountable the way any of your communities would want to be. You know, a church community, an educational community, a family community. I mean, all these things have ethics of interpersonal relationships and hierarchies that affect 
how we deal with each other in those communities. And I think that's one thing that's been happening more and more in the last 10 or 20 years in, in, in American music and arts is more attention to community. Who are we shutting out? Who are we letting in? You know, who are we giving more power over us when we could be more of a, a sort of communitarian thing? Um, those those things I think are important to any community, specifically to art. It has to do with then what we're all getting here to do is this thing that we've brought out of nothing. You know, to use an ancient Greek idea about what art is, is yeah. and this this open mindedness, this thing that might not end up being anything, but that we've we've tried to put together through through what we have access to. I mean, and some of the music you you mentioned um, in the intro. You know, I've called my music performer driven. Yeah. What I mean by that is I've and my scores recently um, are mostly made of text. They're made of text instructions that I consider to be like kind of manuals for a performer who is a master of their instrument to to move through their instrument in a way that is both taking advantage of their expertise, yeah. but also giving them some novelty for exploration in it. Because as a composer, you know, the old fashioned thing for a composer to do is to write the music. And then the players have to play it and either they succeed or fail. But that's not the kind of community I, I want to be a part of. Yeah. And so I'm trying to make music I like to listen to. But another reason I made my scores this way is to have a musical process with another person that is more about acknowledging that they are the ones who have the control over their instrument, yeah. not me. What I'm providing is, is a sort of um, blueprint, blueprint for collaboration. And as a result, I've tried to make my music more um, adaptable to performers' individual tastes mm. and desires and skills. Yeah, yeah, I see that. I see that, and yeah, I, and I and I think that's an interesting approach because it's not just like you know using using this terminology that um, the person's an avatar and the conductor is kind of mm. like controlling. Like, go ahead, fingers, do it, do the thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And at times when you know I'm doing the 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 intake and talking with folks before we get started. You know, I try to make the point. It's like, yeah, so, you know, do you, what kind of answer are you looking for here? I was like, this is pretty much about you. I'm just trying to help guide the conversation. But really, if you want to talk about cereal for 30 minutes, we can talk about cereal. Like, you got some <laughs> some hot takes on Captain Crunch. We can do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, again, as a sort of a quote unquote classical musician, you know, classical music, again, especially recently, has been trying really hard to expand its horizons, expand its audience, for better or for worse. But I think it's important to acknowledge the history of how we got here. You know, uh, classical music may be a little too uptight. Um, that's fine. But the answer to that is not necessarily to just say, okay, classical musicians, you have to improvise in this piece. Something mm -hmm. you've never done before. I mean, that's just going to put them in an extremely uncomfortable position. Yeah. You know, I think there needs to be... Um, not that there, not that there shouldn't be more introduction of improvisation to classical music. I think the way I just described my music could be thought of as something like that. But how can we again acknowledge how we have all gotten to the point we have gotten to, and how can we move forward from that, accumulating that, rather than rather than trying to negate negate it? How can we bring it all with us and create something new and something better? Yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, it's more and more questions that, you know, as the deeper I go down this rabbit hole of talking with artists and creatives about talk about vision and stuff and such. And that's the thing that, you know, when someone's like, yeah, I'm kind of going against what we normally expect, let's say, from content, from a musician, from a composer or what have you. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, do you get it? 
do you not get it? And then I find that some people that don't get it, it's just like a lack of vision sometimes and yeah. or some type of bias that's sitting there. Mm-hmm. And um, but I, I dig that sort of stuff. I dig when mm-hmm. people are like kind of going against it. It's like, this is the way I like to work. It's like, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's a constant negotiation as an artist because you need to stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. You need to work in a way that's going to make you comfortable or else you're not going to produce your best work. But you also need to work with other people. You need to compromise. You need to have social skills. And, you know, in the art world where artists often can have a reputation of being difficult to work with or standoffish or weird, for lack of a better word, (laughs) I I do think, you know, to me, that's maybe one of the most exciting challenges is how can I bring something that I do think is totally new and, and also stand up for it and make sure that I'm communicating best what I think is best about it, mm-hmm. while at the same time maintaining that openness that I think is vital to any community, you know, and, and letting people give me what's making them comfortable and uncomfortable at the same time and creating a, a solution or a partnership that way. Oh, yeah. Could you tell me about how you consume new media, um, specifically like music? You know, as mm-hmm. I, I touched on a little bit earlier, I'm audio booked out. That's how I consume that. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think I keep my ear and my eye to like what's happening. And that's how I'm able to kind of reach in the cracks and crevices of mm-hmm. hmm, who has an interesting story. Let me, let me reach out. And I'm kind of tapped in and that works, but I can't define it mm-hmm. outside of how I just mentioned it, but it's, I'm sure it's broader than that. So how are you consuming new media? So good question. I, you know, for better or for worse, um, I get a lot of suggestions either directly from friends or from social media um, and, and th- things on the internet. Um, you know, I've got, uh, I've got, I use this website Instapaper to keep track of links I want to visit. I put stuff in my YouTube watch later. I put stuff in my Bandcamp wish list. And then often if I'm like doing some, some mindless work and I want some music, I go there. Okay. Let's go through some of the stuff and see what I like. Yeah. Now that, that can kind of contribute to the, you know, backgroundification of music, <laughs> which can be a bad thing too. You know, I think it's, one of the things that as we get busier with whatever our jobs or our family situations are, you know, we lose that music is a thing that you do just by itself sometimes. And yeah. I, I'm trying really hard right now to make more time for that, to have at least some time every day or, or most days where I sit down and I'm listening to something I've never heard before. And that's all I'm doing. You know, I've left the phone across the room, that that sort of thing, because it is quite a different experience. Um, and And again, it's not just about what you learn. It's it's about putting yourself physically in that space for mm-hmm. for a little while about what it feels like to concentrate and to listen and to think and to breathe in that way. I think it's it's an it's an important antidote to to a lot of the pressures of of life around it. Mindful listening. <laughs> I guess so. I'm you know I don't know a lot about the mindfulness yeah. movement, but but I think there's a lot of overlap in a lot of the things I've said today and yeah. what they're going there. So a shout out to to what's going on there. You know. Um, again, I don't know how much of it, I'm sure there's a lot of pseudo stuff and a lot of good stuff, but I do think, you know, there's these cliches like live in the moment and, and, you know, uh, stop and smell the roses and all these things. And what I appreciate about what I know about the mindfulness movement is they go beyond those cliches and say, here's how to do that. Here Mm -hmm. are some activities you can do in your daily life. That's basically what a musical performance is a score. Here's an activity you can do to make yourself feel a certain way. And so I think there is a lot of overlap there. And I do think it's important. It's it's almost, it's a kind of meditation almost. I prefer to stop and smell the garlic if we're, if we're being <laughs> that's ridiculous. Well, yes, making sure to eat well and, and cook well is another thing. <laughs> so this is the, 
the last real question that I have before I get into the rapid fire and I've added more rapid fire as you've been talking because okay. I have a funny, I have a funny observation about composers that I want to get your take on. I'm ready. I'm uh, ready. So this one is, uh, and I think you're in a, you're in a, uh, you're in a unique spot where you're also working, you're a working composer, but also an educator. So, um, why is it important to protect access to musical education? That's a great question and an important one. And I want to answer this without making any concessions <laughs> because, because I think too many have already been made. And I, and I'll always say, especially in this country, um, music is something that almost every different person in the world that has been encountered by whatever our modern body of knowledge is, has done in some sense. Now, we don't always think of it as music, you know, is worship music music or is it music or is it worship? Is, you know, there, there's there's lots of different philosophical discussions we can get into. But um, I think that alone means that there is something extremely powerful here that needs to be attended to. Um, I think, as I mentioned before, that music and musical practice encourages an open and accepting mind, which mm -hmm. is vital. I mean, there was an op-ed a few, like 10 years ago, maybe I remember about the New York Ballet or the New York City Opera was soliciting donations. And it was this left-wing writer who was like, the opera is bougie. It's not helping anyone. Do not give it money. And in a sense, like, you know, I'm not a person who thinks if we lose the New York City Opera, then the world is ending. But I, I want to discredit this notion that art comes is completely thought of separately from subsistence and equality, mm -hmm. because I think the kind of mind that art making and creativity in its best forms can encourage is vital to us learning how to evenly distribute the essentials of life, of how to share things with each other, how to understand each other's stories and learn why someone different from us is worth sympathy and love as much as we are. That might be a little grandiose, but I, I think I could defend it if I had a little, if I had a little more preparation. Um, another thing I'll say real quick, as someone who teaches at University of Baltimore, which is a wonderful place to work and, and I think a great place to learn, um, is that you know, we are a public school, we're um, an older population, um, a mostly uh, non-white population. And I keep running up against these narratives that people who are in public schools or cheaper schools or, or things like that, they need to focus on science and technology and math. Now, again, I am not trying to dump on science, technology, <laughs> or math, and I'm not even trying to dump on the idea of needing a job. You need money to survive. There's no doubt about that. But I think we need to be careful about the message we're sending mm -hmm. about who deserves what kind of life. Yeah. Music in my opinion, is one of the things that makes life worth living, full stop. And I think, again, history backs me up on that because yeah. there's very few people who've not done it, no matter how bad their life has been or how dire their situation has been. And so I think one of the reasons we need to protect access to it is to teach anyone, no matter their station, that their life is worth living and yeah. that they deserve to enjoy it beyond their ability to contribute to our economy. 
Um, sorry, that was a little big, but <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought about I, that question for a while. No, I, I 100% agree. And um, I'll tell you one thing as a caveat and as a, a chucklehead sort of caveat. Mm. If someone was like, I don't like music, hard stop. I'm like, I don't like you. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I like, oh, you're a serial killer. Got it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think about how rare that is. I mean, I, I once had a situation where I was talking to a friend's girlfriend and I said I was a musician. And she said, in this very weird way, she said, Oh, really? I love music. <laughs> and that took me back because I was like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't everybody. But it's just that weird. I mean, it's such, I mean, if, if you need evidence that music is what makes life worth living, look at extremely comfortable people and how much effort they put into making sure that they have access to their cultural resources. Yeah. You know what I mean? And when, um, when someone puts on, like, I remember you, you would hear about, I got this new great system, man. You got to listen to it. It is that it's people are oh, investing yeah, yeah, all types yeah. of things mm-hmm. in, you know, like I have a few things in the crib, but really, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the one of the few non jazz albums that I have. Mm-hmm. And it's a Tory Y album under under the pine underneath the pine. And it's mm-hmm. right there. And, you know, that sets the mood for the day. There's so many different things like that. What I'm playing, what music I'm listening to, that changes how I'm going to approach uh, my fitness. That mm-hmm. changes how I'm going to approach maybe working. I might throw on something that has, well, I'm absolutely going to throw on something uh, that doesn't have lyrics in it when I'm prepping, when I'm researching, when I'm coding, because, you know, day job analyst. And, yeah. you know, that is the, for me, I think the seasoning for what I'm doing in a normal day. The I mean, soundtrack, as one might say. Yeah. And you mentioned fitness, and I think that's almost a good allegory. Like, do you need to stay fit to enjoy your life? No, not at all. And I mean, that would that would be an ableist thing to say, I suppose. Um, but not everyone can listen to music either. And I think it's important to point out that there are certain things that are not that do not go directly to making money, that do not go directly even to extending our life. Mm-hmm. That are you know are are the ways we can spend the time we have here in a sort of heightened state of attention and a heightened state of awareness about ourselves and the people around us. And and that's that's one of the things that that sort of approach of these are things that may not have a quote unquote bottom line around it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if someone is like, I'm going to do something that's for the community or what have you, mm-hmm. the, the moment when that's pitched, because, you know, behind the scenes, I'm doing different things. It's I, I, I don't <clears throat> I don't want to talk about impact. I don't want to talk about these different things. Either you have the vision that you can follow along and see that people are going to dig this. It's going to be well-received and so on. And that's just, 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 just be a cool thing that we're doing. It should be subsidized by someone for, yeah. you know, whatever reason other than, you know, but as soon as, well, how much are we going to make from this? And mm. so on, it's like, I think we have the wrong focus here. Yeah. I think every artist, I mean, every artist needs to negotiate that. I mean, you know, there's a push right now, especially with younger musicians, to to for them to realize their worth, and especially musicians who are not insti- institutionalized is the wrong word, but who have not come up through institutions like yeah. I did, or, or who are, who are in maybe more marginalized genres, to be like, you are doing work and you should get paid for it. I yes. mean, that is important. Um, but I think deep down, I mean, that goes back to what I said. Like, that the important thing about an artistic community is the important thing about any community. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, you know, legal battles over copyright. Oh, they stole my song to use their own song and they made their own thing out of it. And it's tough. You know, I I, I want intellectual property to be, to be free and open, but I also don't want people to, to not get 
compensated for labor, especially if their labor is basically funneling money to people who are more privileged, privileged than yeah. them. Yeah. And not, not to get too political, but I think if we solved the general, or not solved, but if we worked on the general societal problems of inequality and of people needing to beg, borrow, and steal for every last little dime, then that alone would enable us to loosen our grip on intellectual property a little bit because it wouldn't be our livelihood right. that we're fighting for. It would be something else, you know? Right. I agree. And I think that's a good spot for us to uh, mm-hmm. stop. And I'm glad we got that in there, by the way. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's all about authenticity and, uh, here. Let me say one little quick thing, which is sure. that a lot of this stuff I've learned from being a Baltimore musician. I've been here almost 10 years and I've learned so much um, from the city. It's full of resilient and unbelievably creative people. And I've learned so much about what can be beautiful art and where you can find it um, in all different parts of the city and all different kinds of venues. And and that, as much as anything else, is what has helped me think about these things. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Now, with all of the goodwill that we've established in the last 30 <laughs> minutes or so, <laughs> Now it's time to get weird. Uh, okay. So, you know, I got some good questions. I got some odd questions. You know, we'll we'll see where we go. Um, I'll, I'll thought, start off with a softball. If you could put it in one word, what is the best thing about your job? Like, let's say education or e- either either side. You can go education or composer, which whichever one you want to go with, or both. Teaching. You said job, and so I thought of my job. You okay. know. Yeah, yeah. And. Teaching is a cheat because it cre- it contains a lot of things, but being in there, throwing something out and, and hearing it thrown back, um, having what I say be modified by the experiences and of everyone else in the room, um, that, that never gets old. Dope. If, uh, what is your go-to lazy weeknight dinner? Uh, um, Kenji Lopez Alts, uh, it's these chicken thighs in this kind of like peppery sauce that you you sear them in the pan and then you put the pan in the oven for 45 <laughs> minutes. So it's 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 not that hard. Um, but when you take the pan out of the oven, put something on it to remind you that it was in the oven. Because once <laughs> I then forgot and grabbed it and burned the hell out of my hand. Oh no. I, I actually made that. actually made chicken thighs yesterday and I had a similar instance and I was like, <laughs> I need to put something on this. Uh, yeah, I always leave the oven mid on so I remind myself. Because I had, I had this heavy cast iron joint and I oh, was, gosh, yeah, I was yeah. like, this is gonna end badly. <laughs> <laughs> and um I actually made some some green beans and uh, mushrooms and a bit of feta with it. It mm. turned out really well, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um now now I'm gonna get progressively weirder. Uh what would be the name of your autobiography? I feel like I had an answer for this once. The name of my autobiography would be... Please say with great power or something. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Um, the name of my autobiography would be Working Through It. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love it. Um, yeah, I think one of the things, I, I, one of the notes I made about the earlier questions was something about especially now I'm almost 40 now and and around now is when I'm realizing that the work you put in, it does come back to you. Mm-hmm. You might not realize it, but whether that be in terms of people remembering you for something, an opportunity, or even understanding something you thought you'd never understand, it just takes law a lot longer time than you thought it would, but it'll, it'll come. <laughs> so, Jen. um, so I, 
I, I, I enjoy movies. I do a movie review uh, podcast outside of this. Mm-hmm. And I find that some of my favorite movies, there is something about the score that really pops. Like I love mm. the score for RoboCop or even most recently the, the latest Batman movie mm-hmm. that, that hits. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I think the vinyl sold out or what have, you know, it's like three different vinyls. Or what it was r- ridiculous. What is your favorite movie score? God, I am going to be just pilloried by my friends for this because I don't really, I don't really pay that much attention to movie scores. Oh. I mean, I I do, and the, the thing is that I write sort of modern classical music, which you might describe as um, being classical music that weird sounds come out of. You know, <laughs> classical music situations that weird sounds come out of. And one of the first things everyone says is that that was great. That could be in a horror movie. And so you kind of react <laughs> negatively to that. Yeah. But um, okay, here's an here's one that's just coming to mind real quick. Do you remember this movie Hannah from like ten years ago? Vaguely, yes, yeah. Dearsa Ronan was this like little girl assassin in the Arctic or something. That was one of the first movies I I, I watched that had like in these natural landscapes. It had these like big blasting synths. You know, this kind of um, this kind of disjunctness between the sound and the visuals. Nowadays, I almost feel like that's a little overdone. But I do remember being excited by that, by the fact that my eyes and my ears could be feeling two separate feelings at the same time. Dig it. It's a good one. This is the last one I have for you. And this is the one I think is really funny. Um, Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. How would you describe composer hair? Because I've seen <laughs> some hairstyles out there with composers. Um, and uh, I mean, as a person who has, as I'll describe, unfortunate hair, uh, I shaved, I shaved my hair before I got on this podcast. I shaved my hair before I got on this podcast. Uh, composer hair is funny. I was looking through a list and I was like, what it was that choice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to cite two scholars in response to this question. <laughs> the first is Roland Barthes. Okay. Who said when he was writing about fashion, no one dresses innocently. The idea being that I don't quote, I don't put any work into my appearance, quote unquote, is a decision, a decision you have made about how to represent yourself that that is working in the world. Um, the second person I'd like to cite is Bell Hooks, who <laughs> in her book on teaching talked about how upset she would get when her white male colleagues would walk in with rumpled shirts to teach every day, knowing what was expected of her, yeah. you know? So to take it back to composer hair, I'm thinking of some of my dearest friends when I think of Walt composer hair, and they know and they know who they are. And you know, I think a cynical person might say, "Well, composers sometimes affect you know these wild hairstyles as a way to separate themselves without you know separating themselves musically." But I will remind that you know, again, as a as a thinning hair person myself. Looking normal is also, quote unquote, normal is also a choice. And it does reinforce the normal. And that's not necessarily any better than than going for it in a different way. So whether you're my more, you know, I'm in the early comb over stages, maybe, or you're more of a Buzz Osborne. Um, <laughs> say go with what works for you. No, I, I dig it. I dig it. I was, uh, <laughs> that's really funny. It was, uh, I, it was uh, some, some recent news. And I just remember my, my, uh, my girlfriend was like, oh, no, that's absolutely a composer. It was just someone we saw. And I was like, no, he's absolutely a composer. Look at his hair. And I was like, was wow. It jo- was it Jonathan Hayward? It was. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, he's absolutely he's a composer. Yeah. He looks great. Let's, you know, I, I think I'm really excited about, about his hire at the BSO. Um, and, 
you know, I, I think he's someone, he's obviously someone of two worlds, you know, he's um, of the American world of the European world. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the hair just threads that needle in a great way. And it makes Absolutely. me excited for what's to come. Yeah. Looking forward. And it's just like, oh yeah, that's a component. It's just boop, right. There you go. <laughs> so that's pretty much it for today. Um, I, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast and I want to uh, share, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where to uh, check out your work and all of that good stuff. Thank you so much. Um, I would start with my Bandcamp page. It's ianpoweromg.bandcamp.com. Um, and then uh, after that, maybe head over to my website, which is a little more comprehensive. That's ianpower.net. Um, and that'll have a little more information and links to other stuff. But I've got two albums out. Um, they're both on my Bandcamp. And I always think listening is the best place to start. So there you have it, folks. I want to, again, thank the powerful Ian Power <laughs> for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there is art and education and community in and around your neck of the woods. You just got to look for it. Yeah.